HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is being served. Um, Today's guest is Dr. Charles Benbrook, who is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. He is the program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. His career has focused on developing science-based systems for evaluating the public health, environmental, and economic impacts of changes in agricultural systems, biotechnology, and policy. He has worked extensively on pesticide use and risk assessment and the development of biointensive integrated pest management. He played an important role in the evolution of the 1996 Food Quality Protection Act and has produced multiple reports on agricultural biotechnology. In other words, he is the Mac Daddy of biotech and ag. Welcome to the program, Chuck Benson. Uh, Benbrook, thank you so much for joining me today on Sunday. I really appreciate your time. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Katie. Um, so, uh, Dr. Benbrook, if I may call you that, or should I call you Chuck? Uh, let's try Chuck. Okay, Chuck is good. Um, Chuck, let's before we jump into like the, the, the nitty-gritty of this stuff, um, can you just define GMO, genetically modified organisms, and how this technology is different from hybridization, which you know everybody thinks, I think a lot of people have a misapprehension that, um, that uh, bio, that uh, genetically modified organisms and hybridization are kind of one and the same thing, but they're really very different. So can you explain what that difference is? Sure. A, a, genetic, a genetically modified organism, uh, uh, also referred to as a, a genetically engineered organism, right. uh, has um, moved into its genome, so into its genes, uh, uh, a genetic trait from outside of uh, 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 that particular organism. So 
In other words, um, if you take a, a fish gene and move it into a tomato, mm-hmm. you create a genetically engineered tomato with a novel trait that is uh, brought about by the DNA, you know, from the fish. So that that is the the um, uh, essential characteristic of a so-called GMO plant. And that's opposed to hybridization, where you just cross-breed different, uh, different strains of the same genetic package, correct? Exactly. All of your, uh, there's a wide range of traditional plant breeding techniques that involve taking advantage of the genetic diversity that exists within the tomato genome or within the corn or wheat genomes. Uh, these methods, um, however, do not introduce any DNA from outside of the uh, tomato, corn, or wheat genomes. Okay, cool. All right, I think that that clears up that. <laughs> In case everybody was wondering exactly what the difference is, there you have it, uh, straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. Um, now, to go right into the GMO issue... The industry argument, and I'm, by this I mean large-scale agriculture argument, is that we need GMO crops to provide enough food for the growing world population. How accurate do you think that argument is? Oh, it, it, it's not terribly accurate. Uh, none of the existing genetically engineered crops on the market today uh, you know, were developed uh, uh, to increase yields. The the primary traits that are in the market uh, uh, relate to pest management. Uh, the biggest one, of course, are the so-called herbicide-tolerant crops, mm-hmm. and these would include corn, soybeans, cotton, canola, sugar beets, alfalfa, and a, and a few others. Uh, these crops are genetically engineered to withstand applications of a broad-spectrum herbicide called glyphosate. They're commonly referred to as Roundup. Uh, so, I mean, so this, this largest group of GE crops that have been planted around the world since 1996, they, they really don't have anything to do with increasing yields. In fact, the, the evidence suggests a small yield drag as a result of the genetic transformation that uh, um, renders them um, uh, uh, tolerant of, of uh, applications of this uh, Roundup herbicide, which... Uh, without the genetic transformation, the, a farmer spraying this herbicide on a soybean field, for example, would kill both the soybeans and the weeds, and, mm-hmm. and that obviously is not uh, something you know farmers uh, want to do. So initially, they were thinking that this was going to reduce the pesticide and herbicide load on agricultural land, and in fact, <clears throat> as you recently, uh, in your recently published uh, 16-year-long study on GMO crops, um, you described something quite different. Can you talk about what you found in your study? Well, sure. Uh, uh, there's two major types of uh, GMO or genetic, uh, genetic engineering traits that have been moved into corn, soybeans, and cotton. These are the big three crops that account mm-hmm. for, uh, I'm sure, over 95% of the acres of GMO crops planted around the world in the last uh, 16 years. Uh, the one type, as I said, are engineered to be herbicide tolerant, and these these crops, of course, would would impact herbicide use. And then the other major type are uh, so-called BT transgenic or, or insect protected crops, and mm-hmm. and uh, there there are uh, only two major crops that have this trait: uh, uh, corn and cotton. 
And these GE um, uh, crops uh, are engineered to uh, manufacture within all the cells of the plant uh, a natural uh, bioinsecticide that uh, is derived from a soil bacterium. So for those crops, they've been genetically altered to produce inside of them a natural insecticide, um, making it unnecessary for farmers to spray certain insecticides during the season. So the BT transgenic crops impact insecticide use, and the so-called herbicide-tolerant crops impact herbicide use. And what my study found over the first 16 years of commercial planting of these major GE crop technologies in the United States, there's been over a, a 500 million pound increase in herbicide use, above which it uh, likely would have been in the absence of this technology, and about a 125 million pound decrease in insecticide use brought about by the, the so-called BT crops, mm-hmm. uh, resulting in overall, in terms of the impact of today's GE crops on pesticide use, about a 400 million pound increase uh, over what uh, pesticide use would likely have been in the absence of the technology. So, uh, you know, while the industry has claimed that these technologies were designed to reduce uh, pesticide use, the the BT insect protective traits have been delivering on that promise uh, fairly consistently, uh, although less lesser uh, in, in recent years. But the herbicide tolerant crops have really backfired and triggered um, the emergence and spread of a number of weeds resistant to glyphosate, which has in turn uh, forced farmers to increase their applications of herbicide. You know, <clears throat> I think that's just. You know, if I were a farmer, I'd be really mad because, first of all, doesn't it cost more? Excuse me, doesn't it cost more for farmers to buy the extra herbicide? So, if you've bought, if you've invested in your Monsanto or your whatever other companies are producing these, if you've invested in that technology and you're finding that you're ending up, which probably costs you more to start with, am I right in that? Can you comment on that? Yeah, the big economic hit on farmers is when they buy the seed. Right. Um, the uh, the genetically engineered seed in the case of uh, corn is about four times more expensive than conventional seed. It's between three and four times more expensive in the case of uh, genetically engineered soybeans. And in the case of cotton, it's six times more expensive. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the biotech companies have been able to... Uh, uh, have very strong intellectual property protection or patent protection on uh, the genetic, uh, the genetically engineered crop varieties. So that's where they charge their their premium prices, uh, as opposed to um, making money off increased herbicide sales, which they they certainly do. But uh, the the real profit center for the biotech companies uh, um, um, is the seed. So it lies within the seed, and yet. And yet, so you pay all this extra money to get your herbicide-protected uh, crop, and instead you find yourself buying X number of extra herbicides in order to... It's sort of like using antibiotics in multiples. You're using herbicides in multiples. Am I right about that? Yeah, and not, I mean, not only are many farmers uh, you know, having to, to spray more often and spray additional herbicides, but even with, with extra applications of herbicides, they still have control failures in their fields, 
and problems in harvesting their crop and mm. and um, the virtual certainty of even a bigger problem in the next uh, crop season. Mike, uh, another question to ask you. I'm going to go on to superweeds in just a second, but I want to go back to what you said about um, the pet, the uh, insecticides. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, why why do you think uh, the insecticides have been more powerful, and do you not fear that they will generate in turn a super bug, a super insect that is also resistant to those genetically engineered uh, crops, the BT corn, for example? Good good question, Katie. Um, well, actually, when the BT corn and cotton uh, applications came into the government, and in, and in the case of these insect-protected crops, these are actually regulated under our federal pesticide statute uh, by the EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the EPA, in effect, interprets a, uh, a BT-expressing genetically engineered corn variety as a, they call it a plant pesticide. Wow. Uh, so it's a plant that produces pesticides, so they're actually regulating it under the the uh, authorities granted to the agency in, in the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And what the EPA did in the case of the BT crops that they didn't do in the case of the herbicide-tolerant crops was require from the get-go, from the very first approval, that farmers had to... Uh, abide by a number of specific practices recommended by university scientists and industry specialists to prevent the emergence of uh, of resistant insects, uh, so-called superbugs, uh, to, to use the popular uh, terminology. Uh, and these um, provisions that were a mandatory part of the uh, federal approval that that went on to the 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 bags of uh, of BT corn and the bags of BT cotton and um, uh, bound farmers to certain practices have 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 proven for the most part effective in uh, uh, delaying the emergence of resistance. We do see, unfortunately, just in the last couple of years, the first signs of uh, truly resistant insect populations mm-hmm. uh, that have been created by the uh, heavy reliance on these BT crops. So um, the, the success over the last uh, you know, 15, 16 years in reducing insecticide use through the planting of these crops is now so also in jeopardy uh, because of the spread of, of resistant insects. And right now, if you, for example, go on to the website of... Uh, of uh, any of the major land grant universities in corn country or mm-hmm. down in the south where where BT cotton is grown you'll see academic um, insect specialists recommending to farmers to both plant the genetically engineered seeds and spray insecticides in order to um, try to prevent or delay the the spread of these uh, resistant insects so it's it's kind of like the whole purpose of the technology in the first place was to make it unnecessary to spray certain insecticides. And, and now, uh, ironically, the uh, farmers are being advised to, to both pay the extra for the seeds plus still spray the insecticides. So we're kind of back to square one. Back to square one. And what amazes me is that with all of the information and uh, findings about 
the evolution of insects and weeds or plants, the fact that they, you know, that they evolve at such a greater rate than, say, humans, um, why, why couldn't they anticipate this? I mean, I, I find it incredible that this was completely unanticipated. What do you think oh, about that? Oh, you are flat wrong, Katie. It was totally anticipated oh. and predicted by a number of scientists. In right. fact, uh, a very wise uh, uh, entomologist from Texas A&M University, a guy named Marvin Harris, predicted the number of generations uh, in <laughs> the European corn borer and certain uh, cotton in- insects, the number of generations that it would take, and hence the number of years, right. for resistance to show up to in Bt cotton. And he was he was right. Uh, he was actually exactly right. I think his Incredible. original estimate was fifteen to seventeen generations, and there's like four per year. So, you know, his estimate was you know five or six years of BT cotton before you'll see the first signs of resistance, and that's a and he's pretty much what right happened. On the, money. the the same thing goes with the herbicides. Uh, I mean, the 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 herbicide tolerant crops are custom made. To, to, to trigger the emergence of resistant weeds and the spread of resistant weeds, especially if farmers heavily rely on a single herbicide-tolerant technology and a single herbicide, which is exactly what happened mm-hmm. uh, because of the domination of the GE crop market by the so-called Roundup-ready herbicide-tolerant varieties. Uh, uh, you know, we've got... In, in the United States, just in ballpark figures, farmers harvest a bit over 300 million acres of cropland every year, uh, and uh, over half of it is planted to crops that carry this Roundup Ready gene. So you can imagine this intense selection pressure across the surface area of the United States um, you know where you know wherever weeds grow with farmers fields being sprayed over and over again every year with glyphosate herbicide it it of course uh, it, you know it, it was going to trigger uh, resistant weeds and and it has there are now in the United States 23 different uh, weed species that are resistant to glyphosate and some of the some recent industry surveys suggest that as many as a hundred million acres, so um, about two thirds of the acres planted to these herbicide tolerant varieties already have one or more um, herbicide resistant weed uh, on them. Wow, that's that's a stunning uh, <laughs> stunning set of statistics. Um, and so, just to, to ask the obvious question, what impact do these um, super weeds and the rise in chemical use, uh, the crops, et cetera, have on the environment? Like, for instance, I'm thinking about bees. I'm thinking about water pollution, farm workers' health, et cetera, et cetera. Like, can you give us like a quick thumbnail of that? Well, sure. You know, in the in the case of um of the BT crops, uh, their relative success in managing some of the hardest to control insects in both corn and cotton, they have reduced uh, the need for farmers to spray some pretty nasty broad-spectrum insecticides Mm -hmm. that uh, harm a lot of beneficial insects, uh, pose risk to to farm workers and, and, and bees and birds. So there's there's been some uh, some documented improvement in 
um, in some of the the corn and cotton production areas in terms of lessened use of higher risk insecticides, although that benefit is starting to be eroded now um, by uh, the, the emergence of some resistant insects. In the case of herbicides, it, it's a much different story. Uh, the commercial introduction of the herbicide-tolerant crops, and in particular the Roundup Ready crops, was, was heralded by farmers. It was a very simple Absolutely. system. It worked really well. While it cost farmers a bit more, it was worth it to the farmers because Roundup Ready technology turned one of the farmer's biggest headaches, weed management, sure. into one of the simplest aspects of managing their corn, soybean, and cotton crops. So they, they really liked it. Uh, even though they had to spray more herbicides by volume, even though they had to uh, spend a bit more money. But, and so that's why the technology was adopted so rapidly. Sure. Uh, but after five or six years of use and, and the, uh, the resistant weeds started to emerge, farmers found that to get the same level of control, they had to spray 10% more, 15% more glyphosate each year, and then they had to add another herbicide into the mix. And, and then a few years later, they'd have to add a second additional herbicide into the mix. And so as this, this ramping up of herbicide use has now gone on for almost a decade, yeah. uh, it, it really started around 2000, 2001 with the emergence of the first resistant weeds. And now, you know, we've uh, crop year 2012, where which was a total disaster for American farmers because of the drought. Right. I mean, the, the problems with superweeds was uh, not very prominent in farm country this summer because of the devastating drought, uh, and, and for obvious reasons. But, you know, the concern is, uh, you know, what's going to happen next year. And, and, and so the, the, in terms of the environment and public health, many people are deeply concerned about um, the likelihood that the the US Department of Agriculture will approve soon a next generation of multiple herbicide tolerant crops that have been genetically engineered to withstand glyphosate and another herbicide glufosinate uh, or liberty as well as a old phenoxy herbicide called 2,4-D which is uh, uh, which is uh, uh, one of the the higher risk herbicides that are that are on the market today. It's been around since the 50s. Uh, this 2,4-D was about 50 percent, made up about 50 percent of the of the uh, herbicide used in Vietnam called uh, Agent Orange. Which, oh my God! <laughs> which the remember the you the, just the made the me lose my headphones, man. <laughs> Sprayed it out of B fifty two bombers to oh and in helicopters to yeah. defoliate the forest uh, to uh, make it easier to to fight the the the, the, the yeah, so, of course. You know it it um, uh, the, the, while you know the industry was very uh, proud of the fact that that glyphosate was generally regarded, and I would agree, uh, that uh, as one of the safer herbicides on the market at the time, uh, 2,4-D is definitely one of the riskier ones. And um, research done by the federal government, paid for by our tax dollars uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, proved that 2,4-D herbicide applications increase um, a number of reproductive problems, uh, in, including 
spontaneous abortions and failure to, failure to conceive, increase a number of different birth defects, uh, and also at least four different types of cancers. Oh, my God. So th- this is, the, the, you know, this in the next few years, this is what farmers and, and their rural neighbors in, in the Midwest and in, in cotton and soybean country in the southeast, this unfortunately is what they have to look forward to. Uh, millions of more pounds of riskier herbicides being sprayed all through the summer period uh, when people are outside, people are growing their gardens. Um, there will be substantial new exposure pathways that, that we have no experience with right. um, by virtue of the use of this next generation of uh, herbicide-tolerant crops. Well, we have to take a short break, um, unfortunately, but we're going to come right back to that very same uh, aspect uh, in just a second. Um, Please stay with us. My guest is Dr. Charles Benbrook from um, Washington State University uh, talking about GMO crops. This is Straight No Chaser, and uh, we'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And we're back with Dr. Charles Benbrook. My name is Katie Kiefer. This show is called Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, Dr. Benbrook, uh, we were just talking a second ago about, um, uh, what did you call it, 2,4-D? Yes. Yes. And 2,4-D is uh, an agent that is used as an herbicide. It's been around since the 50s. Thank you. It reminds me of like thalidomide babies. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of technology, (laughs) doesn't it? I mean, it's that sort of like these these fabulous chemicals that were supposed to do these wonderful things. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you're delivering an an infant with no arms. But anyway, so now we're delivering uh, crops that have been sprayed with something that um, we used, uh, that that Vietnam uh, veterans came back, you know, in droves with terrible um, issues because of their exposure to Agent Orange, and here we are planning to to drop more of it onto our own uh, agricultural fields. So, um, and that leads me, and you were saying that it, it causes spontaneous abortion fertility issues, and it reminds me of a recent French study that I read about earlier this season that demonstrated uh, alarming results from feeding rats with GMO corn uh, with and without glyphosate, which was thoroughly criticized by a number of scientists and quickly dismissed as flawed. Are you, you're aware of that study, right? Oh, sure. The Seralini study. Yes, yes exactly. Um, did you think it was flawed? And I think it's interesting that the, that study mimics what you just described as the effects of using uh, 2,4-D. Well, you know, there, there's a very lively debate going on uh, in the scientific community about this uh, uh, study by uh, a, a French, uh, very experienced French toxicologist uh, yeah. uh, uh, named Seralini, and, and he's, there, were, there was a half dozen other scientists on the team that carried out this work. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, it is um, indisputable, actually, that the Seralini study is the most sophisticated and sensitive uh, study of its kind ever uh, carried out. And it actually, the Seralini and his colleagues, uh, set out to replicate but do an even better job, a, a, a more uh, careful job, 
of testing um, the impacts of of, the, of a particular uh, GE corn event uh, with and without glyphosate herbicide um, in a study design that mimicked the original 2004 study uh, developed and paid for by Monsanto that mm-hmm. supported the original uh, regulatory uh, review and approvals of this technology. So what Seralini did is they they looked at the um, the Hammond et al. 2004 study uh, and assessed where it was the the limitations of it uh, compared to you know contemporary testing guidelines. Right. I mean, for example, the old the old 2004 study only fed the rats for 90 days. Right. Well, that's like. Um, you know, a, a 90-day-old rat is like an adolescent in human years. And we know that most cancers in humans don't show up in the teenage years. It, uh, most cancers that, uh, you know, have a, a, a latency period uh, in, in humans of 20 or more years. Uh, uh, so uh, clearly there was concern that this original Hammond study uh, might be missing some longer-term subtle health effects because it only co- uh, covered 90 days of the, the life of the rat. So Seralini and his group designed their study very much like Hammond but fed the rats for two years. Right. And to their amazement, they didn't expect to find this, but they had a statistically significant increase in, in, in a number of tumors, in cancer tumors, in the rats that started to appear in the second year. Uh, and this was one of the explosive findings that uh, got a lot of immediate attention. Um, uh, the, the, the team actually circulated some uh, photos of, of rats with these, these you know, ugly, uh, large tumors. And, and um, this got a lot of attention, but it also triggered a lot of criticism because Seralini didn't design the study from the beginning as a cancer study, which would have required 50 animals per control and dosage group. That's, that's what the uh, OECD, which is an international body, that's what their testing guidelines call for in a study that is originally designed to test for cancer. Seralini's study was just a long-term feeding uh, study that only had 20 animals per group. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, they did observe uh, this statistically significant increase in, in tumors, and they reported that. Um, and, and, and this is one of the reasons that the, the, the study has been so soundly criticized. But for, for, all, the, for all the, you know, any readers that are, that are actually interested in what was found and the debate in the scientific community, there's a lengthy set of letters on the website yes. of the journal including the Seralini's team response to the criticisms that have been received uh, to date uh, on the website. Perhaps on your show's website you can put a link I think we to should. the letters uh, on the journal's website. I just read, I actually just read all of them. And, you know, I, I think Seralini and his team are, are doing a pretty good job uh, 
responding to the criticism, although, you know, they, they, they certainly have an awful lot of critics out there. They do. I mean, I was amazed at the pushback. And, um, and that leads me to my next question, because unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. I hope you'll come back, because this is just way too much information for one half hour show. Um, but what about your study? Did you, did you get a lot of pushback uh, from, you know, uh, from, say, Monsanto and its, and its um, you know, contemporaries in terms of your findings on the uh, 16-year pattern of herbicide? Use? Well, uh, not so much from Monsanto itself. I mean, Monsanto is uh, is is a very sophisticated company, and they know that uh, if they criticize or attack a scientist like Sir Seralini or myself, uh, that is that is uh, going to trigger a, a response in the media that that probably isn't in their best interest. So, yeah, right. what Monsanto <laughs> does is they fund various surrogates, uh, uh, other university professors, uh, uh, trade associations like the uh, bio, bio biotechnology industry organization or bio, sure. uh, various uh, other academic groups. Uh, to conduct reviews and and really offer up the criticism of work like that done by uh, uh, Seralini and, and and myself, I've been um, analyzing the impact of GE crops on pesticide use in the United States for uh, actually for ten years, and my findings have become clearer and stronger um, as the years have gone by. And you know, I'm just trying to keep the industry honest. You know, yes. they you will still find claims by uh, so-called experts that today's GE crops are reducing pesticide use. It's just not true. Yeah. You know, it's just not true. And, and so I, I hope, uh, if anything, my, my work uh, will, will um, bring some discipline into the PR from the, the biotech industry to at least be honest with the fact that, yeah, the, the herbicide tolerant crops worked really well for the first you know, five, even eight years, but they're not working as well now, and, and herbicide use has gone up. You know, that's, that's uh, part of the story. It's not the full story, but it's an important part, and it's one that I'm, I'm trying to uh, keep the uh, biotech industry um, uh, honest on. Well, we're going to have you come back to talk more about just that issue. And the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, but unfortunately we don't have time to today, um, is about the competition for funding and corporate pressures, um, which I do think have a significant impact on what studies get funded and what don't, and ultimately have a kind of somewhat corrupting influence on the scientific community in that sense. So um, you, I want you to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll schedule another, you know, another uh, program to talk really just about that, um, just about how studies are funded. And would you be willing to do that? Sure, it's a it's a very important topic, it and is. Uh, I, I'll take my homework assignment seriously. <laughs> okay, that's great. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, my guest today was Dr. Charles Benbrook from um, is it Washington State University, sir? Yeah, Washington State University yep. out in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Yeah, man. Thanks so much again for joining us, and thank you to my sponsor, uh, Sam Edwards, and as well as Edwards and Son. And congratulations to Sam for winning yet another award for his amazing Suriano ham. Um, next week, my friends, um, we will be joined by. Amanda Hitt from the Government Accountability Project in Washington, D.C. She's going to come on to talk about chickens and the new proposed rules about chicken inspection, which should have you all trembling in your boots and definitely buying from your local farmers. So um, this has been another fabulous episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thanks to my engineer, Joe Galarraga. And uh, we'll see you next week with Amanda Hitt. So long for now. 
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 